Get 12 weeks of The Spectator in print and online for just £12. And we'll give you a £20 Amazon gift voucher absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to the edition, The Spectator's weekly look at some of the most intriguing and important issues within the week's magazine. I'm Lara Prendergast. In this week's episode, we've banked on vaccines being the way out of the pandemic, but could their rollout lead to the first great geopolitical battle of this century? Plus, we take a look at the scandal rocking France's elite. And finally, we ask, is art running out of ideas? First up, the European Union hit out at AstraZeneca this week, saying they're not providing enough vaccines. The pharmaceutical giant, some in Brussels said, should divert jabs made in British supply chains to the continent. In this week's cover piece, Matthew Lynn, columnist for the Daily Telegraph, says it marks the beginning of a new vaccine war. He joins me now, together with the science journalist Laura Spinney, who's written about vaccine nationalism for Unheard. Matthew, in this week's cover piece, you say that the vaccine rollout is starting to turn quite nasty, which seems surprising because a few weeks ago we were all feeling pretty optimistic about the process. What's happened in the last week? Yeah, I think I think that's true. I mean, if you you know you go back to just before Christmas, you know it was an amazing achievement. You sort of take things for granted in the way that you do once they're done. But you know, you flip back a year, everyone, all the experts were telling us it's impossible to get a vaccine in a year. Couldn't be done. Never been done before. Won't happen. And you know, we had a series of results: Pfizer, Moderna, and the Oxford AstraZeneca results, which were amazing. And we managed to get a vaccine in a year. But in the last few days, in the last week in particular, it's gone. It's gone very sour. And that's particularly because it's hard to get the production of the vaccines up to speed enough. There's also been particular problems in the EU, A, with the way they ordered the vaccines, and B, with the approval process. I mean, they've been behind the curve in the approval process. They're kind of getting in a big state about whether they got enough of the Oxford vaccine, but, you, can't, you know, they haven't actually approved the thing yet. So there's a big row kicking off about who gets the vaccine, who gets the supply in time. I suspect, you know, there was there was bad planning on all sides. You know, that we should have been spending more earlier in the process to ramp up production um, and actually one of the big points about the whole vaccine story and, and Laura's written about this will chip in at a moment you can argue about who pays and what pays but I think whatever you spend it's almost certainly not enough because the one way out of a global pandemic is a vaccine and if you look at the kind of damage it's inflicted on the world you know whatever the cost it's a bargain so you know we didn't really spend enough we didn't spend enough in this country on ramping up production in the EU other countries around the world didn't spend enough on production. It would have been great if Pfizer and AstraZeneca could have been up to, you know, 500 million doses a month from day one. But, the, you know, that wasn't possible. So now there's, you know, a huge, huge and fascinating battle kicking off about who gets supply, where the supply goes first and who gets vaccinated first. And, and you refer to this battle in the piece as the first great geopolitical battle of the 21st century. And Laura, you've written recently about what you call vaccine nationalism. C- can you explain what that concept is to listeners? I mean, it's just the idea that uh, exactly what Matthew's just been talking about, that nations are rushing to serve themselves first and to buy up supplies according to whatever budget each country has put aside for that. And he was talking, I think, about you know how the rich countries have decided different levels of funding they're, they're willing to put into it. But of course, the bigger picture is that the poor countries are left right at the back of the queue. And it's pretty ugly. I think we've seen it coming all year and people have been warning against it. 
But I think the problem is that at the beginning of the pandemic, the mechanisms weren't necessarily in place to prevent it, and they're still not. If I can just add a little bit of science into the debate, given that that's my expertise and politics is not, really. It's very dangerous for one particular reason, which is that if you roll out your vaccine globally, or vaccines in this case, in a patchy way, you are going to drive what we call viral escape. So new variants that are evolving in response to this patchy rollout. And what it means is, since viruses don't respect borders, is that you cannot vaccinate yourself out of lockdown. No country will be protected, even if it has enough vaccine to protect its entire population, because there is a danger that there'll be new variants to which those vaccines are ineffective. So when Dr Tedros of the WHO says, as he repeated again last week or two weeks ago, I think, it's self-defeating, vaccine nationalism is self-defeating, it's absolutely true. Even if you're the richest country in the world and you put billions into your vaccine programme and protect your whole population, you won't be safe. The only answer is equitable global distribution. And how would that work exactly? Well, so the COVAX facility is one initiative, the kind of leading initiative to try and promote this. It was set up back in April, I think, and the WHO is on board, CEPI, the the vaccine alliance, and a lot of pharmaceutical companies, a lot of generic producers, private sector, public sector, all kinds of people, civil society uh, organisations. And the idea is that if you could protect 20% of every population, you would protect most of the vulnerable people in the world, and that you should try and get the vaccine to that 20% of each country, rather than let you know some people buy up more than, than others. And that this would be not only fair on a, on a moral plan, but it would also promote greater protection globally of everyone. This patchy rollout is what's really going to be very dangerous. Matthew, you talk about how this great new kind of political game is going to really change how we approach vaccines what do you think is likely to happen well yeah no i think i think we're already seeing a lot of that starting to happen i mean i don't i totally accept you know laura's point that you know maybe in an ideal world you'd have a kind of single vaccine authority that you know worked out who needed it most and and distributed the supplies but you know that's some alternate universe i think which is which is not sort of immediately on the horizon that takes levels of maturity and cooperation which are you know we probably need some kind of different injection to get us to that that stage of, of evolution i mean just on your point i mean i think we're already seeing it depends how quickly we manage to defeat this epidemic and whether we see more epidemics but i think you're already seeing you know just a very sort of almost 19th century kind of geopolitical game. We have the EU and the UK, which we're all going to be obsessing about this week, arguing about supplies of vaccines. But, you know, because of the shortages, which Laura was just talking about, for much of the third world, they're signing up for the Russian Sputnik vaccine or, or the Chinese vaccine. You know, they're being rolled out in a lot of Latin America and a lot of the Middle East, a lot of Africa. You know, a lot of that comes with strings attached. I think it's a great shame in Europe that we're all arguing amongst ourselves, given that two of the three vaccines and possibly the two best ones, for different reasons, are, are basically European inventions. It's kind of a shame that we're arguing amongst ourselves about, you know, whether the Dutch 
get them first or, or the British or the French rather than actually pushing them out into the world and using them as a way of promoting you know European values and security and, and harmony but that's that's just not happening there's obviously a lot of vaccine vile diplomacy as I call it in the police going on around the world and I think the Americans are going to have to be starting to look at that soon I mean they've got to inoculate President Biden's going to be concentrating most anxiously in the next few weeks on ramping up his own program and getting up to you know 100 200 million jabs in America but he's also going to be starting to think you know how does he counter the, what the Russians and the Chinese are doing and the long-term influence that comes with it you know you would expect in earlier generations you would certainly expect you know an American president a Kennedy or Roosevelt you know would have been out there leading a global program he would have been the person you know getting vaccines out to Peru and to Kenya and all these different countries and it would have come with you know a little bit of American values and possibly you know a Coca-Cola plant and all the kind of stuff that went with American aid programs so I think you, you can't you see this kind of battle as this pandemic rages around the world and certainly if there are second or third worlds the countries are using are using a vaccine as, as a kind of weapon for national influence. Laura this seems to be an issue of essentially supply and demand and the, the vaccine is clearly becoming quite a precious resource. How, how easy is it to scale up production of a vaccine? It's not easy when you've got a brand new technology as in the case of at least the Pfizer and uh, Moderna vaccines. But I just wanted to respond to that previous point and say that, you know, unfortunately, I mean, I wrote a book about the 1918 flu, which is the worst in modern history. And what history teaches us is that we do apparently have the unpleasant tendency of having to learn from our mistakes each time, repeat the same mistakes. But vaccine wars and vaccine competition cannot be the solution in the, in the long term. We will soon learn that if we have new variants that escape in this patchy rollout and, you know, don't bring this pandemic under control. So I think, unfortunately, we seem to be repeating the errors, but we will learn from them. And you can see that that's happening already. I mean, Europe has, to date, messed up its vaccination acquisition and rollout. Absolutely no doubt about it. I agree with 100% with Matthew on that. But, you know, the member states control their own health care. There is no sort of federal mechanism for, for doing that. But they understand that that's going to be necessary in order to prevent this happening again in the next pandemic. And if you want evidence of that, they've already been talking about, I mean, far too late for this pandemic, but last November about setting up something called the Health Emergency Response Authority, I think is the name, which is sort of being perceived as the first step towards a, a kind of European health union, which wouldn't take over the responsibilities of the states, member states, but would, as I understand it, complement them for just such crises as this one, where you need to be coordinated in your acquisition and rollout of various key technologies for, for containing the crisis. So I think what, what you're going to see is maybe these vaccine wars in the short term, but it cannot be that we kind of go into our silos and that's the long-term solution. I just don't see it. It, it will be stupid. <laughs> and politicians are not, you know, they're not that stupid. So the longer-term solution has to be different. Coordination and cooperation. <laughs> Laura, do you think, I mean, there's, at the moment, obviously, all the countries seem to be setting themselves this standard, well, you know, Israel wants to vaccinate its entire population. Is that, I mean, people of sort of my age in their early 30s, I mean, do we need to be vaccinated? Or, or would it be better to, if Britain had spare vaccine, to give it to a, another country or to sort of be a bit more open-minded about who, who could get that vaccine? So as I understand it, at the moment, given that we have these new variants appearing already, which is happening as a result of poor infection control, by the way, even before the vaccine came along, 
The point is that we're going to now have to vaccinate a greater proportion of every population in order to, to stop the pandemic growing and start it shrinking it, if you like. I mean, I've seen numbers up to 90% now, so that's like very, very high. And that includes people of your age. And of course, there's many uncertainties still. We don't know if any of the vaccines stop transmission as well as kind of reducing the severity of the disease in the person who gets it. So there are all sorts of unknowns. But I think the COVAX approach has got to be the right one where until you are up to, you know, scaled up your manufacturing to an ideal level, while vaccine is still in short supply, you need to take care of the most vulnerable section of each population, which they estimate at 20%. And then from there on, you go to less and less vulnerable sectors. It seems to me a logical approach. That's what they're working on now. Just finally, Matthew, do you think there could be any benefits to the vaccine war? In, in that, do you, I mean, do you think the West may end up looking like it's in a position of strength if it manages to inoculate more of its population first? I think there'll certainly be national winners and losers. I think the, the Israelis and I think the countries that have managed to put through a, an efficient programme will, will see benefits from it. I mean, I take Laura's point that it's they can't insulate themselves, but once you do get up to 70, 80% of your population vaccinated, you know, you possibly can start emerging from lockdown more quickly and that'll have clear economic benefits. I'm going to disagree with some of the kind of COVAX stuff. I think, it, you know, it's a little bit pie in the sky. Competition will work. I do think it's important that we do things like maintain patent protection for the drugs companies. I think that it's hard to get up to speed and to produce four or five billion doses of a particular vaccine. That's a really difficult thing. But if you're going to get someone to do it, then, you know, AstraZeneca, Pfizer, these companies would be top of your list, wouldn't they? Rather than anyone else. That's the person you want to call. If anyone's going to be able to get it done in a year, they'll be able to get it done. But that's not a an alternative to COVAX. They're partners in COVAX. No, I don't agree with you. I mean, it depends on which, which aspects of it. But I know that, but obviously there are elements within COVAX, where, there are elements within those programmes where they're talking about having, removing patent protection. Well, that's separate. That's separate issue. It's a separate debate, but I think, but I think lowering those kind of standards. No, absolutely. Those big companies are partners in, in COVAX and they're licensing around the world. And I, I think we'll see much, much more of that. And I think we saw today that, you know, Sanofi, which is a big vaccine manufacturer, their own one, which the EU bought too much of for all kinds of reasons, but that, that one didn't work but it was a reasonable bet I mean actually you know if anyone's going to come up with a vaccine a year ago you would have seen if were, were quite likely because they're good at this stuff but now they're partnering with Pfizer to produce the Pfizer vaccine rather than their own one which is you know the French have plenty of manufacturing capacity and actually getting so there are some little bits of maturity kind of coming into the debate you know rather than the French and the British arguing about it or the Americans you know it makes sense for, for, for those French factories and the Sanofi factories to start making the Pfizer vaccine vaccine rather than having to have a French vaccine, which I think was their, their initial plan. So we're seeing little bits of maturity. And, and, you know, coming back to Lara's point, vaccine nationalism, you can make anything sound bad by putting the word nationalism in front of it. But in fact, having national champions, having countries producing as fast as possible can have some benefits. But, you know, the difficulty is, I think, when they become hostile about it and when they use it for geopolitical ends, which I think is the territory we've started slipping into, unfortunately, in the last in the last few weeks. And I, and I, I suspect that we're going to find it very difficult to get out of it, having having you know gone down that track. We're going to find it difficult to get out of. But, you know, on, on the positive side, I suspect that we will be able to ramp up production to the sort of three, four billion level 
which is what we're going to need towards the end of the year. But I think countries are just going to be much more defensive about it. We're seeing it in the UK with the big new vaccine centre we're building in Oxfordshire. I think other countries, get. I think you're going to see one in Germany and France. You're going to see them in America. You're going to see in China, Japan, major countries. You know, every developed country is going to have their own innovation centre, research centre and manufacturing hub, you know, possibly all in the same place, possibly with lots of guards around it where they you know look after their own people and be able to manufacture their own their own vaccines and that's one of the things we've learned from the spat between the uk and the eu this week you know everyone's going to want to have control of their own supply of vaccines if they can afford it i absolutely agree that incentives are important pharmaceutical industry is absolutely vital with all its technical expertise and resources and so on but you could imagine a different model where it's not them who decides what what drugs are developed and which which diseases are important without sacrificing those incentives. So you could have a, a model, for example, which we're very far from achieving or realising and it will require a complete rethink. But you could imagine a global public health organisation, something like the WHO, which was properly funded by its member nations, which it isn't at the moment, that offered a prize for the, say, vaccine that was most likely to reduce the burden of a given disease in the world, a disease that the WHO, if it was that, decided was really the key priority for public health. And then it would keep control over whatever product won that prize and it would have a say in the the global distribution. So that's keeping pharmaceutical industry in the game with all their expertise, providing the incentives by a different means, but the same incentives, having far more transparency in the process and having the priorities set by an organisation that is interested in the global public health rather than the pharmaceutical industry, which the way it works is by commercial incentives. They respond to their shareholders. It's not their fault. I'm not blaming them, but that's the way it works. We could, as a society, imagine a different way of doing things. Thank you, Matthew, and thank you, Laura. Next up... A number of influential French elites have this week been accused of child sex abuse in a scandal that's rocking the country. In the magazine, Jonathan Miller explains what's happened and looks at why the victim's stories have been kept quiet for so long. Jonathan joins me now alongside the journalist Anne-Elizabeth Moutet. Jonathan, in this week's issue of the magazine, you write about a child sex abuse scandal that has shocked France. Can you tell listeners about it? Well, this is a, um, a scandal that involves one of the the big fromage, the big cheeses of the French academic media scene. And, and allegations launched in a new book by his stepdaughter that some 30 years ago, he sexually abused the 13, her 13-year-old brother. And this has rocked France for a number of reasons. First of all, because Olivier Duarno was very well known. He was president of the Council of Administration at Sciences Po, which is the great university in the centre of Paris, somewhat equivalent to the LSE in London. He was a, uh, a big cheese in the, uh, in the Siècle Club, the Century Club, which united all the movers and shakers in Paris. And this abuse continued for years, as did very sybaritic um, libertine parties at his mansion in the south of France. But nobody breathed a word, and only now are the facts coming to light. And this is causing a huge scandal. And, what, and why have they come to light now? They've come to light as a result of the b- publication of the book by uh, Olivier Dumel's uh, stepdaughter, who has revealed the sexual abuse, but as tellingly has revealed the, this great network of silence that suppressed this for year after year after year. 
he lifts the lid on a on a on a society centered around the Saint Germain de Prey in Paris, this village of intellectuals who kind of run everything in France, have run everything in France, and their complicity in in you can call it incest, you can call it child abuse, but certainly uh, the sexual exploitation of a of a young adolescent by their stepfather. And Elizabeth Jonathan says in his piece that this story actually hasn't been hugely surprising because people seem to know quite a lot about this already. Do, do you think that's a fair assessment? I think, yes. I think there are many points that Jonathan makes that are, are, are very important. And one of them, uh, actually, Jonathan, you said Saint-Germain-des-Prés. In the book, Camille Kouchner, the, the author and the twin sister of the victim, says that there were about eight streets in the 6th arrondissement where one could possibly live and be part of that, that group. It's not exactly Saint-Germain-des-Prés. It's slightly south of Saint-Germain-des-Prés. And it circles, it's around the Jardin du Luxembourg and the Palais du Luxembourg. And that tells you how incredibly incestuous in so many ways this, uh, this whole story is. What's interesting, of course, I don't think that most of the people who went to the house knew. They could have guessed something was up they certainly knew that there was this whole ethos, if you will, of uh, free love that was very much something of the 60s that went on, that you were unsophisticated if you weren't able to kiss anyone, old, young, some of the parties. There was, as the elder brother of the twins says, there was the possibility that people had games with a younger men and older women. All of this was well in the open. The incest itself was hidden. The incest was in it was secret for the years that Olivier Duhamel perpetrated it on quote unquote Victor, the uh, the, the, the false name in the book for uh, the author's brother. He told he kept on telling him, Don't tell your mother, don't tell anyone, this will be our secret. And it was very obvious that there was a difference between incest and this kind of strange atmosphere. That one nudge at the other is very possible. Certainly the one thing about Olivier Duhamel, he was such a powerful man in any way in, in French society, in his own family, in within his circles of relations circle and the inter, of relations and the interlocking circles of power, that very obviously he felt that he could do anything, everything was possible. There's a very interesting um, question that arises from this, which is as a result of the events of 1968, where sexual liberation was a major theme and the uh, subsequent ascendance of this cohort of individuals into positions of power in France, where they lived out their, their fantasies of sexual liberation on, 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 on others and on indeed on children. Was that a uniquely French thing or... Is, is this kind of uh, sexual aberration possible elsewhere? I'm pretty sure it's not a uniquely French thing. Uh, I've been looking for what is uniquely French about this. Maybe Elizabeth can help. Is it the that Paris is kind of a village, uh, is really quite a small place for those of us who are Londoners, and that everybody knows everybody, and that this fosters an atmosphere that is itself rather inward-looking? 
you're quite right. And I would say it comes from the fact that actually society in France is much tighter and much smaller. And, and what the French called l'ascenseur social, the, the social lift, no longer exists in French society. Upward mobility and cross-class mobility is something that is much more free and open in Britain, whatever you may think about British society, in my experience, and I've lived in both. In France, there's this, this complete cohesion of a number of people who are once they get somewhere are not terribly inventive they create obstacles to coming into their circle you have to go through a number of hoops uh, in order to be accepted and once you're accepted you can go on forever decades several decades and i don't think that's the same thing quite in england and in england there's also this interest oh this is somebody new different and interesting let's let let's bring them in oh this is somebody who says something different let's bring them in and have fun and it's never about fun in france it's about conforming so if you and you have to realize that olivier duhamel by his position as as a professor at sciences po essentially has taught everybody on the left and on the right And all these people knew that if they wanted to have good marks, they had to follow a very strict way of writing their papers. They have to go into a certain kind of belief that was somewhere in the sort of center and never to not conform. And, and that is part of it. It's, the, it's also what explains the lack of inventiveness of French society. I mean, my theme, and I, I plan to write about this, is that if we have been unable to distribute vaccines in any way in France, it's because people are unable in France to think outside the box. And it's the kind of thought that Olivier Duhamel created that makes it impossible for an entire generation of French elites on all sides of the spectrum to think outside the box. Well, you explain it better than I do, Anne Elizabeth. Is there another another point that a question that I haven't? I don't live in Paris. I'm not part of that circle at all. That that seems to me interesting is the reluctance of the French media to question some of this behavior. I've actually seen French journalists boasting that the line is inviolable between private lust and public trust. That they just don't go there that the British press is much more croustillant, crusty, and would never stand for this. But the, in Paris, where the media are subsidized and, and very much integrated with the establishment, that somehow they gave the, these Duhamel and others a pass. I would say croustillant in Britain is a combination of crusty and sparkling. And the French press is dull, and therefore the French press went into the internet crisis with no money at all, because fewer and fewer people were buying them, not because they could find information elsewhere, but because they were boring. And they were boring because they were conformist. So, but I think the whole private life thing, which existed so much in the 19th century political press in France, I mean, French press has always been opinionated, and all my foreign friends who say, how shall I understand the French media? I say, Read Balzac's Lost Illusions. Everything is in it. It's absolutely uncanny. It's, it's the same thing. But the one thing that has disappeared is ad hominem accusations. And that's, I think, it's because there was an armed truth between from the 60s on, and that was the time of Charles de Gaulle, who sort of, you know, wanted people to be in one line. But... Le Canard Enchaîné was the newspaper that was rocking the boat. They had no advertisers, they had no subsidies. This was fine. Canard Enchaîné editors had as creative 
nothing like incest, but certainly they had an interesting private life of the kind that, you know, the French have a reputation for. And so the idea is we don't talk about your private life and you don't talk about my private life and we're all fine. And honestly, I mean, I remember very well being told this when I was just beginning. And it was fascinating because Canard and Chenet are the ones who said, you know, it's not news beyond the door of the bedroom. But it was not as holy as that. And the whole thing was so practical for everything to go on uh, in the same way, to say, oh, c'est sa vie privée. This is his private life. This is her private life. It does, it's none of my business. But that was, that was an element of just sheer sort of horse trading and cowardice in it. And just, just to finish on, Jonathan, I was going to ask you, how much of this is a, a sort of generational issue? Because it, it seems to have sort of come, come off the back of the Me Too movement that you mentioned this me too incest hashtag that's trending at the moment is is a lot of this a kind of reaction of a younger generation well, I rebelling against the older generation speaking to speaking to you clearly uh, a, a millennial that uh, the baby boomers are under unprecedented attack at the moment <laughs> and uh I think this is probably eternal. Uh, you, you're waiting for us to die so you can inherit the products of a lifetime of hard work I do think, however, that the baby boomers, that our generation, whether they were in Paris or like me on campuses in America, we have, we have a, you know, a mixed record. On the one hand, we invented the internet. On the other hand, you know, this kind of summer of love gave birth to uh, a sexual liberation that has been badly handled and has had many, many victims. And uh, the polling in France that suggests an astonishing figure of 10% of French people say they've experienced incest at home. I find if this is true in France, it must be true elsewhere. I don't, I've lived in France long enough that I don't think the French are particularly, actually particularly different from other people I've known. So I think the whole story is, is, is one that gives us pause. Thank you, Jonathan and Anne Elizabeth. And finally, in the lead article in this week's Arts Pages, Dean Kissick writes that bad figurative painting is today's hottest trend. Art, he says, is running out of ideas, and Instagram may be to blame for it. To explain, he joins me with Eddie Frankel, visual art editor of Time Out magazine. Dean, in this week's magazine, you say that art is, frankly, running out of ideas. Why do you think that's happening? Well, I think art has been all about innovation. It's always particularly contemporary art. It's always chasing and chasing the new thing, pushing the limits of what art can be and always kind of coming up with new ideas and fetishizing the new. And we've, we kind of have come to a point where it feels very exhausted. So people have gone back to older forms and ways of remaking them. This is also very true of internet culture in general. It's really accelerated the pace of consumption and it really prioritizes novelty. That's the whole model of content much of the model of life now is just this constant churn of new forms of entertainment, essentially. And Eddie, is this something that you've noticed as well, this lack of innovation in the art world? I think there's always innovation happening. I think that art is a space where interesting new stuff happens and has always happened and will continue to happen. I think the difference is that the stuff that makes the big headlines is stuff that's pretty horrific and uh, some incredibly poor quality painting especially that's that's getting out there and and that's what people then think 
is good painting, especially these days you see that celebrities buy big artists, they buy things by Alex Israel and by Cause. And so that makes you think that those artists are doing well and those artists are at the forefront of what contemporary painting is. And that can give you a pretty skewed vision of of how interesting and how good painting is. So I think in general, stuff looks pretty bad, but that's because if you look at things according to what's popular or what sells at auction or who gets signed to the big galleries, it is pretty bad, but there is lots of interesting stuff happening. And more importantly, I think bad painting has been around for centuries. As long as there's been painting, there's been people profiting off bad painting. Dean, you mentioned in your piece this trend which you refer to as zombie formalism. Can you can you tell us about what that is and, and, and why you think that's such a problem? Well, what I'm talking about is zombie figuration, as in a kind of zombified figurative painting. But it's something that people have been expecting to come throughout the decade because there was a very talked about trend called zombie formalism. The term was first coined in 2014 by the critic uh, Walter Robinson. And that was about a new generation of artists making abstract paintings, kind of churning out abstract paintings that were essentially just a kind of re-performance of a movement that had already happened in the 50s and 60s. So have a new generation of artists taking the history of abstract expressionism, taking the idea of abstraction and just making art like this that's very market friendly, that doesn't really add anything new and is just a diluted form of what was already there with a twist. So that blew up in the middle of the 2010s. It was a a big bubble, it burst. And as soon as that was over, I think everyone knew, well, the kind of abstract wave, market wave came and went. So what we're going to have coming is a sort of zombie figurative painting. And that's exactly what's happened. And that's where we are right now. Have a lot of artists remaking the history of figurative painting or just producing very light, very easy versions of figurative painting without really, without doing anything new, essentially, without adding anything to what's already been done and doing very well from it, making huge amounts of money. Pretty much all of the best-selling artists in the world at auction level now are doing this. They're figurative painters. It's interesting. I mean, Eddie, Dean mentioned earlier the idea of artists looking back and sort of... Do you see artists looking back as a, as a bad thing? I mean, traditionally in art history, artists do tend to look back because that's obviously where there's much material. But do you think at the moment, because of social media and Instagram, it's actually becoming quite a pernicious force in, in sort of current, the current art world? It's a tricky thing to deal with because, like I said... Artists have been bad ever since there's been art. So, you know, lots of people like the pre-Raphaelites. I think the pre-Raphs are horrendous. I think there was amazing art happening in Europe. And for some reason, the British were busy looking backwards and ripping off older art in order to make the stuff that they thought was good. So the pre-Raphs ripped off old art and in the process made lots of money and became very popular. And so I think this trend of looking back has been, is, is nothing new, but I would say that there's an awful lot of people looking back in, in a in a post-postmodern sort of way and trying to reformulate something that's already been reformulated. So Dean mentioned his piece, artists like Martin Kippenberger and Albert Olin, who are amazing painters, who painted badly, quote unquote, on purpose. 
and also looked back a lot, but they were doing it as, as a sort of first wave, look back and tear it up. And now we're looking back on people who looked back. And so you sort of end up with this, it's like theories about theories about theories. And you end up having to need a degree in art history to understand why they've bothered. And then you sort of wish you hadn't. <laughs> and Dean, it's often the case in art history that the artists that are very famous or popular in their time don't tend to be the ones that history then looks back on. Do you think it could be possible that there are lots of artists out there who are doing interesting things and moving things on, but perhaps they're not quite so prominent on Instagram or haven't got the backing of the big galleries behind them? Yeah, I think, I think that's certainly true. I also think some of the artists mentioned in the piece are very significant. Someone like Cause, you know, like him or dislike him, I think he'll, he'll play a huge part in the history of art at this moment because he really effected a shift. He really is kind of collapsing boundaries between what we'd consider high art and more kind of illustration or kind of cartoon, almost like streetwear adjacent work. You know, he, he performs a similar role to what Virgil Abloh has done with Louis Vuitton. So, so I don't think they're all insignificant, but I, I think for the most part, the artists dominating the market right now are very, they're very bad, but bad in just a kind of inoffensive, slightly tedious way. So the huge market stars are always going to be very unpopular your kind of Jeff Koons, Damien Hirst, Takashi Murakami, people like this. But I think there's a lot of value in that work. And I don't see it so much in, in the market stars at the moment, because when I was researching and looking at this list of the 10 best selling artists at auction, born after 1974, I, I literally haven't heard of most of them. I, I had to Google two thirds of them. I had to Google to have any idea what they're making. And I am, I'm an arts professional and I don't think I'm in a, the minority there. I think a lot of people could work, write, make art and just not know who these people are. So there's been quite a separation between worlds going on. Just to end on a slightly more optimistic note about the art world, I want to ask you both for a recommendation for listeners of an artist who may not be particularly well known, but who you found exciting and you're kind of feeling enthused about. Eddie? Well, talking about painting, I think I would probably recommend an artist called Glenn Pudvine, who's an English painter, and he's a recent graduate of the RA, and he paints huge naked self-portraits of himself with an enormous penis wrestling a dinosaur and that's basically all he paints and I don't need references to art history I don't need clever painting I just need a naked guy and a dinosaur. Dean? You know I, I used to play football with Glenn he's very he's very good at football. He's very good at um, football I agree. Yeah I can I can go for a, a more kind of art historical recommendation I really like Julian Wen. Julian's a Vietnamese-American artist, so Wen is spelled, you know, N-G-U-Y-E-N. And he's, he's a figurative painter. He's doing well. He's really looking to the canon, to the Renaissance history. Has a big show opening in New York soon, so check him out. Thank you, Dean, and thank you, Eddie. And that's everything this week. As ever, you can read everything we've talked about if you pick up the latest issue of the magazine. And we've also got Lionel Shriver on why the capital assault was a gift to Democrats, Sam Leith on Doc Martens and why he loves them, and Katie Balls, who interviews the Children's Commissioner Anne Longfield. 
Thanks for listening. And as ever, please do join us again next week. Get 12 weeks of The Spectator in print and online for just £12. And we'll give you a £20 Amazon gift voucher absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher.